Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Today's show is about some epically brave men including one that ended up here in Bristol. Their greatest endeavour was reenacted in the 1963 American epic war film, starring the likes of James Garner, Richard Attenborough, and Steve McQueen. Of course, I'm talking about The Great Escape, which is based on the true story of the mass escape from the German prisoner of war camp, Stalag Luft III. And the reason why we're talking about this historical event is because the British Royal Air Force officer who is nicknamed Digger for helping to construct the numerous tunnels while a prisoner of war in Germany during World War II, was Eric Perry Dowling. One of his tunnels was used in the breakout from Stalag Luft III near Sagan, Germany, that became known as The Great Escape, made famous by the 1963 movie of the same name. Perry was born in Glastonbury in southwest England on 22nd of July, 1915. He joined the Royal Air Force when war was declared in 1939 and was trained as a navigator for the RAF Bomber Command, rising to the rank of Flight Lieutenant. He had flown 29 missions before his bomber was shot down in April 1942 over Germany and he was sent to a prisoner of war camp for Allied airmen. His most traumatic memory was not the camp, but a training flight he missed, which crashed with the loss of the entire crew. A little bit more overview of what actually happened in Germany at the time of the Great Escape. There was a certain amount of paranoia amongst the Germans, which led to deterioration in the relationship between captor and captive. And some of the key points are the German labour force is depleted by continuous drafts into her armies. Because of this, the country was filled with a large number of foreign workers, slave labourers in addition to prisoners of war, and remember, that's not just British and Commonwealth. We're looking at men from the Russian and French armies, as well as other countries. The increasing numbers of escapes by the prisoners were partly due to overextended resources and an inability to effectively guard and contain the prisoners. The deteriorating military situation in association with the increased incidence of escape and foreign workers, slave labourers on the run 
cause concern over internal security at the highest level, and there seemed to be a genuine fear that escaping servicemen would link up with partisans and foreign workers for sabotage and rebellion. Let me tell you a bit more about the Sargon prisoner of war camp. Stalag Luft III was in the southeast of Berlin in what is now Poland. It was intended for downed American and British airmen, but by 1943 usefully included former Polish mining engineers. While imprisoned, Eric became fluent in five languages. Now, at Stalag Luft III, tunnelling was a standard pastime in the camp, and it is estimated that the Germans discovered at least 80 tunnels. These digging activities caused the authorities to install a control system of microphones buried around the camp perimeter, which from late 1943 gave proof that large-scale tunnelling was being carried out. the word of the week this week, I thought I'd delve into the archives and see what came up with World War II. Now, there's quite a few, as you can imagine, and one of them that I quite like was battle breakfast. Isn't really a word, but hey-ho. It's a Navy term referring to the heavy breakfast of steak and eggs commonly given to sailors and marines on the morning of a combat operation. And a word for someone in the Air Force who doesn't fly... They were called a penguin. While in the Sagan prisoner of war camp, Stalag Luft III, Eric Dowling helped plan the mass escape that became known as the Great Escape. The prisoners, many trained as designers or engineers, forged passports, passes and identity papers and made German uniform and insignia, civilian clothes, compasses and maps. And the digging tools and ventilation shafts were made from powdered milk cans. The plan, devised by squadron leader Roger Bushell, was for the most elaborate escape of all. 250 prisoners through three long tunnels, nicknamed Tom, Dick and Harry with tools and equipment scavenged from scrap metals, and the tunnels would be dug 30 feet deep to deter detection. The first shallow tunnels collapsed in the sandy soil, burying the diggers. They then dug deeper, shoring with boards from bunks. Survivors remembered sleeping on nets of ropes made of rags because all the planks had gone. The telltale bright yellow soil dug out had to be hidden under the huts or smuggled in trousers legs and shaken out into the garden plots. During the digging, Tom was discovered by the guards. Dick was abandoned and it was through Harry, the entrance hidden under a hut stove, that the men escaped. In March 1944, Harry was finished, running from hut 104 towards the perimeter wire. It was 363 feet long, nearly 2 feet square and 28 feet underground. The tunnel was in three sections, 
with bays in each section for the men working the rope trolley system. This system enabled the efficient transportation of men, tools and discarded soil. The tunnel was lit by electricity diverted from the camp's own electricity circuit. In all, some, well, about 600 men had been involved in the tunneling and other aspects of the escape. Those chosen to escape first were German speakers. The remainder had been decided by ballot. The escapers were instructed not to wear identity discs in the belief that if they were caught near the camp, they could pretend to be foreign workers from a neighbouring labour camp. Nevertheless, some of them did carry discs. Most of the escapers elected to travel in pairs, choosing their own partners. Unfortunately, Dowling was not among the more than 200 prisoners chosen by lottery to make the escape attempt on the cold and moonless night. The escapers were divided into three groups. Those wishing to travel by train for long distances were given priority through the tunnel. Then came those travelling by train for a short distance and then by foot. And lastly, those travelling entirely by foot. At about 10.15 on the night of Friday the 24th of March 1944, Flight Lieutenant Lester Ball removed the remaining few feet of soil to open the exit shaft of the escape tunnel. To have got as far as I did, these guys were truly amazing. But what about the escape itself? Well, the weather was extremely cold, and on the higher ground to the south, snow lay up to six inches deep. It was planned at least 200 would escape during the hours of darkness. Due to a miscalculation by the surveyors, when the tunnel emerged outside the perimeter fence, it was some way short of the tree line beyond leaving an expanse of open ground to be crossed. At about 5am, a guard patrolling further from the wire than normal apparently noticed a track in the snow, caused by escapers crawling from the tunnel through the snow into the woods. He raised the alarm. Only 76 men had actually escaped when the guards discovered the attempt and blocked future escapes. Hitler ordered 50 of the recaptured airmen to be shot, to deter future escape attempts. The breakout of the prisoners from a German prisoner of war camp was one of the most celebrated incidents of the war. Eric was devastated when Hitler had 50 of the recaptured prisoners murdered, including seven very good friends. One of those friends was squadron leader Roger Bushell. He was a daredevil skier, ladies' man and multilingual Cambridge-educated barrister. When squadron leader Roger Bushell, known as Big X, arrived at Staglut 3 in September 1942, he was determined to hit back hard at the Germans, who were reputed to have tortured him when he was recaptured following his last escape. The architect of the Second World War prison break immortalised by the Great Escape is to be honoured with the plaque on a spot where Gestapo officers murdered him in 1944. Just 33 at the time of his death, squadron leader Bushell, played by Richard Attenborough in a classic 1963 film, had been in enemy hands since his first day of combat, 
when he was shot down in a Spitfire during the Dunkirk evacuation. He was the man who galvanised the prisoners. He said he got 600 of them working on the escape plan, but he also turned the north compound of Stalag Luft III into an outpost of MI9. They collected serious intelligence and information about V1s and V2s. The day after the escape from Stalag Luft III, Hitler had given personal orders that every recaptured escape he was to be shot. Sunday the 26th of March, and remember, this was just two days after the escape, when a conference was held in Burschtesgaden. Amongst those present were Hitler, Himmler and Keitel. Well, you can imagine, Hitler was not happy. He flew into a terrible rage and demanded the death of all the recaptured prisoners. Goring was amongst the others who cancelled against this. He was concerned about the Allied reprisals against German prisoner of war. And after further discussions, the number was settled on 50. Keitel would later say, when questioned in court for war crimes, that he was only doing what Hitler asked him to do, following orders. He confirmed his signature on orders ranging from the partition of Yugoslavia to the assassination of Russian commissars, but added, I did no more or less than write down the Fuhrer's decrees and forward them to the officers concerned. He denied the accusations of complicity in the murder of 50 Allied Air Force officers. The operational instructions, known as the Sagan Order, were sent by top-secret teleprinter to all Gestapo and Kripo regional headquarters. Those who saw this message recalled that it read something along the lines of this. The frequent mass escapes of officer prisoners constitutes a real danger to the security of the state. I am disappointed by the inefficient security measures in various prisoner-of-war camps. The Führer has ordered that as a deterrent, more than half of the escaped officers will be shot. The recaptured officers will be handed over for interrogation. After interrogation, the officers will be transferred to their original camps and will be shot on the way. The reason for this shooting will be given as shot while trying to escape or shot while resisting, so that nothing can be proven at a future date. Prominent persons will be exempted, their names will be reported to me, i.e. Himmler, and my decision will be awaited as to whether the same course of action will be taken. How did they decide who would die? Well, apparently they were selected by Arthur Nieb. He was head of Kripo in Berlin, in Nazi Germany. The Kripo was the criminal police department for the entire Reich. Interestingly enough, Arthur Nieb himself was executed by the Germans as he was implicated in the July 1944 bomb plot to kill Hitler. Arthur began to select the men to be murdered using their personnel file cards. Dr Hans Martens, who was actually in the room with Nieb when he made the selection, said that the decision was made relatively quickly and then he went on to say... I attributed Neighbour's excited and uncontrolled behaviour to the fact that he was aware of the monstrosity of the deed which he was about to carry out. There may have been six or eight, or perhaps even ten cards which I gave him. He threw several in front of me, saying, Have a look whether they have wives and children. 
After putting the cards which he had kept into two piles, he took my cards. I gave him briefly the personal particulars of these particular officers. I cannot remember the names of any. I remember, however, that neighbour said in one case, He's for it. He put this card in one pile in front of him, and looking at the picture of another officer, said, He's so young. No. This card was put into another pile. On viewing another card, he said, Children, no, and put it on the first stack. There were then several cards in both piles. In keeping with our main story today, the book of the week is Women Heroes of World War II. It's 32 stories of espionage, sabotage, resistance and rescue by Catherine J. Atwood. It goes through awe-inspiring tales of ordinary women that rose to the challenge of World War II. Like Jotty Voss, a Dutch housewife who hid Jews in her home and repeatedly outsmarted the Gestapo. Or law student Hanny Shaft, who became involved in the most dangerous resistance work, sabotage, weapons transference and assassinations. You'll find that this book is a great collection of stories and it's wonderful to learn about the women who contributed so much to World War II. And now, let's continue with our story. The daily list of those to be executed was passed to the local Gestapo headquarters, giving instructions and the names of the prisoners held by Kripo to be transferred to the Gestapo between the 29th of March and about the 13th of April, the selected 50 men were shot at locations across German-occupied Europe. The subsequent illegal killings became known as the Stalagluft Three murders. In the film, our heroes are shot while stretching their legs and admiring the view. But in real life, it was after they were urinating next to some trees during what they were told was a rest stop. Roger was shot in the back of the neck and head and on an empty stretch of road between Kaiserslautern and Landestar, which is now close to the US's Ramstein Air Base, five days after masterminding the escape. 17 months later, the RAF police sent a detachment to investigate the deaths of the 50 officers, a task made difficult by the Gestapo's attempt to cover up the incident. Anthony Eden, the then Foreign Secretary, said, It is absolutely clear that none of these officers met his death in the course of escaping from Stalag Luft III or while resisting capture. These prisoners were murdered at some indefinite place or places in their removal from the Gestapo prison at Gorlitz on some date or dates unknown. The explanation put forward by the German government is an odious crime against the laws and conventions of war. Before dealing with the facts, I wish to state that the government have no knowledge of British prisoners of war, other than that which have already been reported in connection with Stalagluft III. I make this statement to allay fears aroused by rumours which have received wide circulation recently. We have now received official communication from the German government. It stated that 50 officers had been shot and not 47 as previously stated. The German communication gave the same explanation and attempted justification as was given to the Swiss representatives on April 17th. 
namely that they were shot while offering resistance on being found after their escape or while attempting a renewed escape after capture. It says that the escapes have endangered public security in Germany, and in order to suppress these undertakings, specially severe orders were given to pursue at all costs those who failed to halt upon challenge. It was noted by the British government that it was peculiar that there was no wounded, which is unheard of if the circumstances were as they were told. The ashes of the murdered officers were sent back to Stalag Love 3 after several requests. It was the only occasion known to Her Majesty's government of a British prisoner of war who had died during captivity being cremated, which made it very clear that none of the men had met their death in the way claimed. Anthony Eden ended a rousing speech by saying, We will never cease in our efforts to collect evidence to identify all those responsible. We are firmly resolved that these foul criminals shall be tracked down to the last man, wherever they take refuge. When the war is over, they will be brought to justice. Eric Zacharias, a Nazi policeman wanted in connection with the slaughter, was captured at the 14th hole of the Manor House Golf Course in Ashford, Middlesex. He was being held in the prisoner of war camp at Kempton Park, awaiting his trial, when he broke out and was on the run for 18 hours. During the three-year investigation, 72 men were identified as being guilty of committing the Stalaglaf III war crime, and 38 of them were eventually tried and either imprisoned or executed. There was a ceremony to remember the South African-born bushel, which included the French Air Force flyby for attendees, among whom were expected to be senior British, German and French officers. During the ceremony, a plaque was erected on the spot where he was killed that has been paid for by over £5,000 of donations, including some from a group associated with his old RAF 92 squadron. And what of the men who were captured? Well, it appears they were taken to a Gestapo prison 40 miles away, held six to a cell and offered very little food. The Gestapo kept telling them that no one knew they were there. And to all intents and purposes, you are civilians wearing civilian clothes. We can do what we like with you. You can disappear. You are without protection of the convention. After the interrogation, they were taken back to their cells where German officials picked a number of men out. These men were later seen being driven off, handcuffed, and with Gestapo officials who were armed, while those who were left were handed back to the camp. On the 3rd of September, 1947, 14 Gestapo and SS men were sentenced to hang for the murders. Of four others, two received life imprisonment and two were sentenced to 10 years. Here's a treat for your ears. 
it's the back in the day facts, which I've heard quite a few of you are really keen on. Thank you to Annie Marshall and Will Pritchard, both from the Stokes, who have said they love this bit. So here we go. On the 25th of July in 1978, in England, the birth of the world's first ever test tube baby was announced. On the 26th of July, in 1845, the SS Great Britain, the first ocean-going propeller-driven vessel designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel, set out on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic. Also on the 26th, in 1908, the Federal Bureau of Investigations was established. Originally, it was known as the Office of the Chief Examiner. And on the 27th, in 1996, a bomb exploded at the Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta, Georgia, as the USA hosted the Summer Olympic Games. As I said earlier, the last of the real-life Great Escape team died at his home near Crediton in Devon, England, on the 15th of February 2019, aged 99. Dick Churchill's death follows that of the Australian pilot Paul Royal, who died in Perth, aged 101, in 2015. Did you know the survivors kept in contact through the Sagan Select Subway Society newsletter, of which Royal and Churchill were the last two recipients. Churchill had previously said he thought sharing his surname with the wartime Prime Minister Winston Churchill kept him alive in case the Nazis wished to use him as bait with a powerful potential relative. When asked about the film, our hero Eric Perry Digger Dowling said that while the characters in the 1963 movie were composites of real men, he thought his role in the escape effort was most accurately portrayed by actor Donald Pleasance, the flight lieutenant nicknamed The Forger. But unlike the Donald Pleasance character, he did not go blind from straining his eyes forging documents and eventually successfully escaped to Sweden. After seeing the movie, Dowling would state that it showed some accuracy in the early scenes, but exaggerated too many other aspects of the escape, especially in the portrayal of Americans in the group. One of the most celebrated scenes in the 1963 film, when Steve McQueen charges a barbed wire perimeter fence on his motorbike, was totally invented. Of the 76 prisoners who escaped from Stalag Love 3, remember only three reached freedom. Eric was an excellent cricketer, and in the camp they played games, organised by county, so he led the Stalag 3 Somerset. In 1945 he escaped death in near-Arctic conditions when the camp was evacuated because of the advancing Soviet army. Many of his friends and fellow prisoners died in the harsh conditions. After the war, Dowling worked as an RAF air accident investigator in Norway, rising to the rank of squadron leader, and then spent 20 years working for British Aerospace in Bristol on the supersonic transport Concorde. Eric Dowling married his wife, Agnes Marie, with whom he became a county bridge champion in January 1946, after a six-week courtship. They had a son, Peter, and a daughter, Susan. After the war, Dowling engaged in 
other battles, taking on Margaret Thatcher, who he petitioned to recognise the wrong done to POWs when their pay was stopped during their time in captivity. He survived the war with no worse than ear damage from the appalling noise in the cockpits and returned happily to county cricket. He died one day short of his 93rd birthday on the 21st of July 2008 in a nursing home in Steg Bishop near Bristol. Whilst going through a lifetime's letters, diaries, photographs and memorabilia in the nursing home, Eric's son Peter found a German army revolver and several rounds of live ammunition. He immediately phoned the police who came over straight away so they could take the gun to be decommissioned. When they heard who it belonged to, they refused to charge the usual fee before they returned it. Amongst the other items were many photographs of Eric's time in the camp, as well as a list of wines that he planned on drinking when he came out of there. I have so much respect for all these guys that served in the wars, and I hope you enjoyed the tale that I had to tell today. I'd like to say a huge thank you to those that helped with the show by reading out parts. They included Marcus Keppel Palmer and Steve Shepherd from Bradley Stoke Radio, as well as Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Soundwell, Bristol. I just wanted to share with you some shocking news that I got from the doctors recently. I found out that I'm colourblind, and to be honest, this news came completely out of the purple. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>